Bibles open to 1 Peter chapter number 2. We're going to do sort of a Bible study tonight. I can't say that I have a specific outline. It doesn't mean that I'm unprepared. We're just going to uh, look at a Bible truth, and we're going to see if uh, we can uh, let the Lord take that truth and change some things uh, about us. Um, in 1896, there was a pastor in the Midwest by the name of Charles Monroe Sheldon. He was preparing a Sunday night series of sermons, and he decided to go about things a little bit differently. For many years, when I was uh, an associate pastor, I ran a children's church or junior church, and uh, as a part of it, I often had a story that was continued week by week. And I would build the story up to a climax and say, and now you've got to come back next week and we'll find out what happened. And uh, it, was, it was a lot of fun to do that. And, and kids would come back and they'd be all excited. Are you going to tell us the rest of the story? And that is what Charles uh, Sheldon uh, was doing. And he, he uh, was writing a book. And every Sunday night he would pre present one chapter and then he would proceed to preach a message, not using his book as the text, but using a particular verse in the Bible as his text, and he would build on it. His Sunday night crowds grew to capacity levels as people were being challenged by his book. The original title of his book was, In His Steps, What Would Jesus Do? It has sold over 50 million copies since 1896. It is considered, according to Wikipedia, as one of the best-selling books of all time. When he first released it in printed form, uh, he was given an advance payment uh, of 10 cents a copy, and uh, they sold out of 100,000 copies within a matter of a couple of months. 10 cents a copy. Uh, back in the day. Uh, I was given a copy of that book when I was an 18-year-old student in Bible college, and I remember just reading it through, and uh, it really had a dramatic influence upon my life. I pondered uh, that, that whole thought in his steps, what would Jesus do? And here I am many, many years later, and I'm still pondering that very theme. The text verse for Charles... Uh, uh, Monroe Sheldon's book is verse 21 of what we read with Brother Carson tonight. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Now, we don't want to take this verse out of context to understand it richly and rightly. We need to back up a little and see the, the context in which this verse is found. Can I get you to go to verse number 11? Dearly beloved, Peter is writing, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. Let's stop there for a moment. We know from verse 1 of chapter 1, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, these strangers were Jewish converts to Christianity 
who more than likely after the persecution that started around Stephen with Saul of uh, Tarsus were scattered abroad, Acts chapter 8, and they went everywhere preaching the word. And there was a crowd of them that went north into what is today Turkey, up onto the Black Sea region up there, and they had settled And Peter is reaching out to them, and he is writing this letter to them. He calls them strangers. Remind us, or we need to be reminded, this world is not our home. The songwriter said, this world's not my home. I'm just passing through. Heaven is my home. My citizenship is in heaven. We are just here for a short time. Peter refers to them as strangers. So when we pick up again in verse 11... He's using that title again. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. A lust is a desire for something that we are not supposed to have. We're to abstain from that. Uh, We are surrounded by temptations in those areas. We're to abstain from it. And verse 12 continues that thought. Having your conversation, that's everything about your lifestyle. That is not just the words of your lips, but it is the actions of your life. That's all wrapped up in that word conversation. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Isn't it sad that the unsaved world looks at Bible-believing Christians as being evil, as being the ones in the wrong? Um, I I don't know why this came up on my news feed, but there was a segment uh, from the show called The Moo, uh, The View, um, and I think Moo fits it better. And uh, they had Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. Lily Tomlin uh, is a lesbian. Jane Fonda is a communist. Um, And uh, they were the guests on there. And they were talking about, um, you know, it it came from about the time that the Supreme Court uh, overruled Roe versus Wade. Um, And, of course, you know, all the liberals, they were up in arms about it. Uh, To them, the end of the world had come. And they were just ranting and uh, raving uh, about what they were referring to as the Christian right. They're talking about us. And and I I think it was Whoopi Cushion that raised the, uh, the, the question, what can be done to stop them? Jane Fonda, her immediate word was murder. There was a gasp from the crowd of the, uh, of the, the guests that are there. I, I've heard that to be a guest uh, there, uh, you know, in the, in the audience, you have to fail your IQ test, and then they let you go and be in that audience. The, even that liberal audience gasped at it, and, and one of the other women on the panel said she doesn't mean that, and Jane Fonda said, yes, I do. We're the evildoers. We're not murdering anybody. We're not slaughtering one point so many million babies every single year, but they look at us as evildoers. And Peter said, that's what they were doing in the first century. He said, they might talk about you like you're an evildoer, but you need to live in such a way that they behold your good works and they are, they are changed by your lifestyle, your conversation, to where they realize that there's something different about you in a good way, and they will see your good works and glorify God. 
He says here, glorify God in the day of visitation, meaning there are going to be some, some unsaved people that think the worst of you right now. You need to live in such a way that you change their mind, that they come to understand that what you've got is real, and they trust the same Christ you did. And when Jesus comes again, they're going to be happy they did so. What a great challenge. Verse 13, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. So he goes from having uh, an honest conversation in, in uh, the sight of the unsaved. Now he comes to another practical matter. He said, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Uh, obey the law, whether it's to the king as, as supreme or governors over a smaller area uh, as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, for the praise of them that do well. Peter is echoing the words of the apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13. By the way, who was king when Nero penned these words? Nero, paragon of virtue there, huh? Wicked man, a corrupt and vile man, so vile uh, that he was uh, eventually given a, a forced uh, suicide or they were going to murder him, his own people. He was such a vile human being. But Peter said, you're to submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. He said, verse 15, that's the will of God, that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. It's free. This world's not my home, and, but, and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. Because I'm saved doesn't give me the right to uh, spit in the faces of everything and everybody around me. I'm supposed to submit myself to the leadership, the authority that God's placed over us. Verse 17, uh, honor the men that you like. What's it say? Honor all men. To honor means to treat with value, to treat with respect. It says honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God, honor the king. And again, Nero was the emperor. Nowhere did Peter or Paul give believers the right to badmouth their leadership. Never did it. Didn't mean we always agree with them. Doesn't mean that the leaders always do right. Nero certainly didn't. Uh, didn't do right. Read back in the book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar uh, came out with some edicts that were just absolutely awful. The king of Persia who followed him, you know, uh, got tricked into signing a law that for 30 days nobody could pray to any god or statue or idol uh, other than to him. And to, to men like uh, uh, Daniel, uh, he couldn't bow to that. Uh, we're supposed to obey the, the, the leadership of human beings that God set over us until they tell us to disobey God, and then we honor and obey God. But even if we have to disobey the leadership because their edict is wrong biblically, God's never given us the right to be disrespectful to them. Did you get that? Did you get that? Okay, so I'm supposed to honor the king. Servants, he's using another illustration, be subject be submitted, yield to your masters. That would be employees to their employers with all fear. Not only to the good and gentle, 
How many have worked for somebody that was just awesome? If you're on staff here, I'm assuming your hand's going up. No, really, how many have worked for somebody just, you just like that was a great boss, okay? Anybody ever had a boss that was on the other end of the spectrum? We, we've all been there. Um, he says, servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the what? Froward. The word froward means stubborn, rebellious, uh, difficult to get along with. He said, we're supposed to be subject uh, to them, not because they're nice to us. Uh, we're supposed to be subject to them because that's what God wants. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. For what glory is it if you, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. You're doing wrong, your boss comes out, chews you out or corrects you or whatever, and you take it with a good attitude. Uh, you, you don't really deserve any kudos for that because you're the one that did wrong. Your response to it, the boss was right. But Peter goes on to say, but if when you do well, you're trying to work hard, you're on time, you're doing what you're supposed to, you're, you're, you're trying to be a, a good example and you suffer for it, no matter what you do, you can't please that individual, but you still take it patiently. You don't fire back a lot of lip and back talk and, and, and uh, back biting behind the boss's back, but you take it patiently. This is acceptable unto God. This pleases God. Verse 21 says, for even hereunto were ye called. We were called to behave like this, that when we're mistreated, we don't mistreat others back. When we're spoken badly about or to, we don't respond in the same frame. For even hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. Peter points us to the Savior and said, look, just, just consider Jesus for a moment. He suffered on our behalf. Verse 22, who did no sin, he wasn't in the wrong, neither was guile found in his mouth, never lied. He was not a deceiver. He was not a, a, a phony in any way, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. As they mocked him on the cross, what was his response to them? Somebody? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. You're going to be sorry that you're doing this. Someday you're going to be burning in the pit of hell, and you're going to remember this day. And Jesus did not do that. When he suffered, he did not, he, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Jesus just did right, and he trusted his father to straighten it all out. So the Bible says here that Jesus has left us an example that we should follow his steps, hence the title of the book, In His Steps, and What Would Jesus Do? This is not an isolated teaching of scripture. Go back with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. John chapter 13, and if I ever get there, I'm going to read some verses. This is the night before the cross. The Savior has 
all 12 disciples in the room with him at this time. Judas has not let, uh, yet left to go and betray him. Uh, the Bible says, if you would please, in verse number four, he, Jesus, riseth from supper and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poureth water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to, wash, uh, to wipe them with the towel wherewith he was girded. Then cometh he to Simon Peter, and Peter saith unto him, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Peter's trying to figure this out. Peter's asking what everybody else is thinking. The master is washing the feet of the disciples. That is the job that should have been done for Jesus as the guest of honor when he arrived. One of them should have done it for everybody else, or a servant should have been hired and placed there to do that, Nobody took care of it, perhaps Peter and James and John and Thomas and the rest of them. They all just figured that's somebody else's job. That's a lowly task, and I'm a follower of Christ. I don't do things like that. Um, so Peter's asking him, in, in essence, his question is, Lord, what are you doing? Are you really going to wash my feet? Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. There are sometimes God's going to do things, allow things in our lives that we can't understand. We have to learn to trust him. We have to learn to follow the example of the Savior and commit everything to our, our, our God who judgeth righteously and realize, I don't understand this, but I believe my father has a plan and I'll let him tell me what it's all about when he's ready. So Peter saith unto him, thou shalt never wash my feet. Peter didn't like that answer. I want to know now or it's not going to happen. His pride was stepping in. Pride always makes us stupid. We always do the wrong thing. Jesus answered him, if I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Simon Peter saith unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head at a gathering like this. You, you didn't give someone a full bath or shower. You just washed their feet that got dirty traveling from their house to yours. Jesus saith to him, he that is washed, you, you washed before you left home, needeth not save to wash his feet. You, you, you've taken a bath, you're clean except for your feet, uh, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not always, referring to Judas Iscariot. Um, he's saying, um, no, you don't, you don't need a bath, Peter, you just need your feet washed. And as we go through life, we need to take time to realize we pick up a lot of filth walking through every day in this dirty world. We need to keep going back to the Lord and make sure everything's clean and right between us and God. For he knew who should be betray him, therefore said he, ye are not all clean. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, know ye what I've done to you. He's going to speak to them now. And I'm sort of thinking there was a lot of silence around the table that night. I'm sure they're all sitting there. They're all just a little bit embarrassed because they know the custom. It should have been them washing his feet. Peter had already spoken up and said what they were all thinking, and that didn't go the way any of them planned. So the Savior says, know ye what I've done to you? And the answer to that question is, no, they didn't. But he's going to teach them. Verse 13, ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye, ought, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. Look at verse 15. 
For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Do you remember that in the three years those disciples followed Christ, they had a constant argument and debate amongst themselves. Can somebody tell me what it was? I told you this is kind of a Bible study type message. What was their debate? Linda, who's the greatest? And as it got closer and he's telling them that he's going to be taken from them, their, their uh, uh, interest in that subject was, was uh, growing more and more. And they, they just kind of all thought, well, you know, I'm his favorite or I'm the closest to him or I was the first one chosen or I've been with him the longest. And they're all thinking it ought to be them. And you know, when we're thinking about, am, uh, uh, am I the greatest? We give no thought to, am I a good servant? Uh, Did you know that God didn't call us to be the master and Lord? That's his position. He called us to be servants. We'll see that in a moment in another text. Um, He said, uh, I've given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Now, there are some churches that actually have uh, periodically a foot washing ceremony. And the pastor and the deacons and the staff, uh, they will have the basins and the towels and they will wash the feet of the church members. Um, Can you, can you tell my, the wheels of my little mind are turning? I wonder how many people come, up to, come out to church if we decided to do that. I know, I know some that would be right there, shoes and socks off, saying, about time you wash my feet. Uh, I, but I wonder how many of the staff would suddenly get mysteriously sick you know, that night. But Jesus, he wasn't saying, I, I want foot washing to be a part of your life. He's talking about the whole mindset. I want you to be ready to serve each other. I've given you an example and I want you to humble yourselves in the sight of each other and just be each other's servants. If you do that, you're just like your master and Lord. So this idea of following in his steps, what would Jesus do? Peter wasn't just pulling that thought out of the air. It came from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it also follows what Jesus taught there in John chapter 13. Turn, if you would, please, to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. What were the followers of Christ called? Can somebody tell me? Some were called apostles, only a handful, but what were all of the followers of Christ called? They were called disciples. The word disciple is found uh, nearly 250 times in our King James. I'm sorry, it's 259 times in our King James Bible, both Old and New Testament. It is an often repeated word. By definition, uh, according to uh, uh, Webster's 1826 Dictionary, the word disciple means a learner, one who receives or professes to receive instruction from another or it is a follower who, are, who claims to be an adherent to the doctrines of someone else. A disciple is a learner and a follower. When Jesus referred to those that were with him as disciples, he was, he was telling them, you are followers of me. Matthew chapter 10 starts out when he had called unto him his 12 disciples. Verse 2, he names those 12 apostles. Their names are given. He has some teaching for them, but I want to go to verse 24, in the middle of that teaching to those 12. The disciple, that's the follower, 
is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master and the servant as his Lord. They've called the master of the house Beelzebub. That's another name for the devil. That's what uh, some of the Pharisees and so forth referred to Jesus as being. How much more shall they call them of his household? Don't be surprised. If they treated me that way, they're going to treat you the same way or worse. But I want you to notice again in, in the beginning of verse 25, it is enough for the disciple that he be as his master. As a disciple, if we are truly disciples, we are following Christ. John chapter 13, we are following his example among other things. I'm going to put a, another little time out here. As I've studied this teaching of disciples through the Bible, I've come to this realization. There are a lot of saved people but not all saved people are disciples. A lot of people that can point back to a time and a place where they understood and received the gospel of Jesus Christ and they, they got saved, and I'm, I'm in no place to say they did or did not get saved. That's between them and the Lord. But there's nothing in their life that is demonstrating fellowship. Um, I, I preached uh, not long ago about taking up our cross, um, taking up our cross daily and following Christ and so forth. Um, I'm still working on that subject for, for my own personal growth. There's a statement that Jesus made every time that truth was given up, except a man take up his cross daily and follow me. He said, he cannot be my disciple. Every Disciple of Jesus Christ carries a cross. Because he said, you can't be my disciples unless you do. So this whole idea of discipleship means that I am following Christ in John chapter 13. I am following his examples that as he has done, so shall I do. So this idea of what would Jesus do is a solid, biblically based idea. What would Jesus do? Some years ago, uh, this, this question, what would Jesus do, was sort of hitting, if you will, mainstream Christianity, and that's when the WWJD bracelets and things came out and so forth. And, and I actually heard independent Baptists saying, that's an abomination and that is wrong and no Christian ought ever do that. I'm thinking, what in the world Bible are you not reading from? My Bible says I'm supposed to follow in his steps. My Bible says he's left an example that I'm supposed to follow that example. My Bible says if I am a disciple, I am to be as my master. So the question, what would Jesus do in any given situation, is completely a biblical question. Turn, if you would, please, 1 John chapter 2. I told you that thought that came from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, 21, is not limited to that one passage. Now we're in 1 John chapter 2. John is one of these guys, when he writes in these epistles, it's right, right where the rubber meets the road. John has no patience for those 
who say they are disciples but are not. He is a man who believes in a total commitment to Christ. Look what he says in verse 3 of chapter 2. And hereby we do know that we know him. You know, it's easy to say I'm saved. It's easy to say I'm walking with God, but here's how we know if we really are. Uh, Verse 3, read the last few words with me in, in verse 3, church. Ready? If we keep his commandments. So if I'm not obeying God, and for me to stand up and say, oh yeah, I'm saved and I love the Lord and I know the Lord, I'm, I'm speaking out of both sides of my mouth at the same time. The Bible says the proof of whether or not I really know God is, am I obeying him? Verse four, he that saith I know him and keepeth not his commandments is a what? Liar. I told you he doesn't hold back. And the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him, that's Jesus, ought himself also so to walk, even as he, Jesus, walked. Are you seeing the pattern that's been laid down through scripture? We're to follow in his steps. This question, what what Jesus do needs to become a real part of our lives. It needs to become one of those things where the Bible teaches us to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. We're supposed to examine ourselves about am I walking orderly before the Lord? This idea of what would Jesus do needs to become a, a reality in my life. And if you are going to be a disciple, it has to be a reality in your life as well. Because if you're not following in his steps, you might be saved, but you're not a disciple. How many understand the distinction there? And I understand that's a bit of a hard pill to swallow, but it's Bible. If I don't take up my cross daily and follow him, Jesus said, I cannot be his disciple. Go with me to Philippians chapter number two. Philippians chapter number two. What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? How do, we, how do we answer that question? What would Jesus do? When I pastored in Pennsylvania, uh, for a while, we lived in a, a low-income housing uh, type situation. It was actually very nice. Mostly uh, senior uh, citizens lived there, um, and, and the Lord was good. He gave us a real safe and nice place and good neighbors and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, oftentimes, um, I would work in a factory, come home, uh, eat some supper, the family get cleaned up, we'd head down to Jeanette for church on Wednesday nights. And, and while Trina was getting the kids ready, that was sort of my time to wind down just a little bit from the busyness of working eight hours in a factory and just get my heart and my mind ready uh, for the, the midweek service to, to lead singing, to pray, to teach the Bible and so forth. So I would walk and I would pray and just kind of settle my spirit in the things of the Lord. Well, there was a, a, a fellow that lived in the, the same complex as we did, um, and uh, I, I knew where he went to church, and he, had, he and I had uh, many conversations, and, and I think he was a saved guy. I think he was a sincere guy, and, and, and he had some, some uh, headphones on. Uh, he had a Walkman. Am I dating myself in my story? Um, He had a Walkman. If you're not sure what it is, go toward the Smithsonian Institute in D.C. someday. They have them there. 
And uh, while I'm walking around praying, he was out walking the same area of the parking lot and, and so forth. And I didn't know if he had a cassette tape in there that he was listening to sermon or something like that. And I don't know why he just walked up to me and, 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 uh, and he called me Pastor Bish. That's how he knew me as. And he said, Pastor Bish, good to see you. How's your day going and so forth? And I said, it's going fine. I'm just out here sort of walking and praying before church. And he took his, his headphones off and he said, man, I'm just listening to this, this godly music and I'm just, man, I'm just getting excited about the Lord. He said, this is the kind of stuff that I know for a fact we're going to listen to in heaven. And he put the headphones on my ears and I was assaulted. It sounded like an airplane crashed into a bus that crashed into a ravine that crashed into the view. It was just screeching and screaming. And, and uh, I, I mean, it was just all this stuff. You couldn't make out any of the words. Um, it was heavy metal on drugs. And man, I believe this is what we're going to listen to in heaven. Um, what would Jesus do? He thinks that's what Jesus would listen to. By the way, I don't. I don't find that kind of music anywhere in the Bible. Um, we're supposed to praise upon the, the harp and the psaltery. Have you ever heard a harp and a psaltery played? You can't do heavy metal on either one. Yeah, there are trumpets and there are all kinds of things, but that kind of stuff, by the way, study the history of that music. It didn't come from the Bible. It came from Satan worship in Africa. Even the rock stars themselves will tell you that. That was a rabbit trail. So we... We, we find a lot of people say, well, I think Jesus would be okay with this. Here's what's happened. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And on day number six, God made man in his likeness and after his image. We have reversed that and we are now making God in our image. And it's amazing, our God likes whatever we like. And our God doesn't like whatever we don't like. And we're each deciding for ourselves what God is like. That doesn't work real well. Take the number of people in here. We're all going to decide for ourselves what Jesus would do about a certain thing. You realize that we could have as many different opinions as there are people in here. Is God the author of confusion? Not at all. Not at all. Um, I, I had you turn to Philippians chapter 2. Let me read a couple verses for you. Um, in Judges chapter 17 and verse 6, the Bible says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Israel, the people of God. But every man did that which was right in his own eyes. It didn't say they did what was wrong in their own eyes. They did what was right in their own eyes. If you read the context of Judges 17, it was all idolatry, it was immorality, um, it, it was hacking people up and sending body parts to other parts of the kingdom. It was a dark, sordid time, but everybody was doing that which was right in their own eyes. At the end of the book of Judgment, Judges, it closes by saying the same thing. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Question, the, the time of the Judges, was that a good time or a bad time spiritually for God's people? Predominantly bad. They were in captivity most of the time in the book of Judges. That 450-year period, most of the time they were in captivity to their enemies as judgment from God. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. 
Proverbs 21, uh, 2 says, Every way of a man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord pondereth the hearts. Proverbs 14, 12, There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. So if I'm asking myself the question, what would Jesus do? We've got it all around us in this room. We're teaching a Sunday school series to our children about it. I've encouraged our academy teachers to, to bring that idea out in our Christian school this year. What would Jesus do? Clearly, it can't be left to me and my opinion or you and your opinion. There's got to be something more steadfast and solid. That's why we're looking at Philippians chapter number 2. The Bible says in verse number 5, Let this mind be in you, this way of thinking. You think about everything the way Jesus would. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. There's that whole teaching again, following in his steps, that example that he had. And now my mind is in line with the mind of Christ, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. If I were to say I am God, that is blasphemy. That is a sin. That is wrong. For Jesus to say that he was God was not wrong. It was not sin because he is God who was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. That's what verse 6 means. The Bible says, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a what? Servant, there's John 13 again, and was made in the likeness of men. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So in Paul's teaching to the Philippians about our, the way we treat one another, he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do in his relationship with other people? What would Jesus do if there's a moment of conflict? What would Jesus do if, if, if he's uh, uh, mistreated or spoken against or lied about or any other number of things? The Bible says, as I come to those things in my relationships with other people, I'm supposed to have the same mind that Jesus had. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. So where do I find the mind of Christ? Turn in your Bibles, John chapter 8. John chapter 8. A little different tonight, Bible study style, but I, I believe this is a vitally important thing. I believe if our church is going to go forward, we're going to have to get this down better than we've ever had it before. John chapter 8, and look if you would please to verse number 30. And as he spake these words, many believed on him. Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, him, if ye continue in my what? Word. Then are ye my what? Disciples indeed. What's a disciple? A follower. Jesus said, if we continue in his word, we've got his word right here. If we continue in his word, the Bible says then we are his disciples indeed. A disciple is not someone who claims Jesus Christ is their savior and then goes out and does what is right in their own eyes. 
A true biblical disciple is one who not only claims Jesus Christ as their savior and they can point uh, to the time and place they got saved, but they are following the word of Christ, thus the example of Christ, and their answer to what would Jesus do is found in the Bible, the word of God. So what would Jesus do is not left up to my opinion or yours. It's left up to what does the Bible say? Now, we're not talking necessarily about what would Jesus do? Would he eat at McDonald's or Taco Bell? The answer would probably be neither. Okay, we're not talking, but we're talking about the issues of life. We're talking about right and wrong. We're talking about truth and error. We're talking about morality versus immorality. Uh, we're talking about how we conduct ourselves with each other, how we respond uh, in every single setting. What would Jesus do? It's found in the word of God. Again, I am convinced more than ever that there is a vast difference between someone who is saved and someone who is a disciple of Jesus Christ. Could you imagine with me just for a moment what our church would be like if just this group of people right here took on the challenge that Charles Monroe Sheldon gave to his church people in 1896. Would you put into practice that with every decision you make, every reaction that you make, every action that you take before you do it, you will stop and ask, what would Jesus do? then consult your Bible, study it out, find out exactly what Jesus would do, and then do it. It, it revolutionize us. What would Jesus do? And it's a constant battle. My flesh doesn't lie dormant. Does yours? My flesh wants to exalt itself. A couple Sundays ago, I talked about being at the mall with, with Trina, and we had Tommy in the stroller, we went up, remember how many were here for that? We went up the elevator and the doors opened on the second level uh, at, the, at the Meriden Mall. And there were a couple people behind us and, you know, we're trying to get out. And there were some people wanted to get on, but right smack dab in front of the door, like that far away from the door, there was this woman standing there and we could not get around her. I, I told you, she was a tad on the robust side. And, and all I did is say, could you move so we can get out? Nobody tells me what to do. You don't have any right to tell me. You know, she just went, all I asked was, can you move out of the way so we can get off? Immediately, my flesh had a response for her. It did. It was, Sugar Plum, why don't you turn your beeper on and back up, and once you're out of the way, we'll get out. Anybody else with me on that one? The, by the way, it did not... I didn't do it, okay? Man, pastors, pastor said it's okay. To, I did not do that because that's not what Jesus would do. I didn't run her down with a stroller because I can't find anywhere in the Bible that's what Jesus would do. See, what did you do? I, I wasn't as nice as I should have been. I was, I was short and sharp with her. I, I'm always short, but I mean my temper and my words were clipped and it wasn't the right thing. And the people behind me were getting impatient with her. The people around her were saying, would you just get out of the way? So they, they kind of said some of the things I was thinking and I moved on and like David, when he cut off the bottom of Saul's garment, my heart, my heart smote me because I knew I failed 
Okay, I didn't say the beeper thing, but what I said still wasn't pleasing in the sight of God. And my heart smote me. If I could do it again, I, I, I'd, I'd wish that I would have asked that question first and just taken a breath, what would Jesus do? I know enough Bible off the top of my head, I know he wouldn't have talked like I did. He wouldn't have had the angry spirit that I had. Can you imagine how it would change our homes, our schools, our church, our youth department, if God's people would take the word of God as it says and follow in his steps, follow his example, be his disciple indeed, and let this mind be in us, which was in Christ Jesus, and it's right here. Oh, one last thing. In order for you to know what, would, what Jesus would do, you're going to have to study your Bible. Can't just carry it around. That ain't going to help you. You're going to have to open it up and study it out. And if you don't know the answer to the question in your situation, you might have to get your concordance out or get your Bible app open or, or, or maybe get some counsel on. But you need to find out from the Bible what the Bible says about any given issue. And once you know that, you now have the mind of Christ. And if you do what Jesus does, Peter said, they're going to behold your conversation. And they're going to see that there's something different about you. They're going to be drawn to Christ. And he said, they will glorify God in the time of visitation. Are you willing to take on a simple challenge for one day? From the time you wake up tomorrow morning to the time you pillow your head. Would you be willing to take on the challenge Charles Sheldon gave his church and just asked the question before everything, what would Jesus do? Every problem that arises before you react, would you just stop and say, Lord, what should I do? What would Jesus do? One day, just one 24-hour period. Would you be willing to do that? Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Father, thank you for the, the Bible.